Well, welcome back to the Vineyard Church Podcast. Today we are launching our new series through the book of James, and it's going to be a great day. If you're like everyone else in the world, we've all had times in our life, times when things don't go the way we want. Life often gets difficult, and it's easy to forget that our suffering does not lack purpose. Well, as Chris takes us through the first part of James, he's going to remind us of that purpose, the purpose that we often forget about. Here's Chris. Well, good morning. Guys having a great day? Well, it's not raining inside, so that's good. Glad you're here. Uh, If you're joining us for the first time, welcome to the Vineyard. You picked the perfect weekend to be here because we're kicking off a brand new sermon series. Um, Over the past couple of years, starting in... um, Starting during COVID, we decided, you know what, we just need to kind of provide some stability in a world that's not all that stable, and we decided to do a long book study through the book of Mark, and that lasted about a year, and then we loved that so much, we said, yeah, let's, let's do another book. So we did Genesis, and, um, and we just finished that up last week, and uh, that was a really fun series, and uh, we decided to do another one. So we're going to do James. We'll be in James. Yeah. We'll be in James for the next, I don't know, 15, 20 weeks or so. It's five chapters, so it's, it's, it's very dense, lots of really good stuff in James. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of James. If you're wondering where it is, it's in the New Testament, kind of right in the middle. Uh, but God put a table of contents in your Bible, so use that if you don't know where it is, and you can find that. Um, let me encourage you as we kick off this series. I want to encourage all of us to to um, become more acquainted with the Word of God. Now, we teach God's Word every weekend here, and, uh, and that's great, and I hope you're learning and growing. Uh, but guys, in the day and age that we live in, we need to be rooted to truth. Uh, because nothing's true anymore. You have your truth. You speak your truth. I've got my truth. Whatever I feel seems to be truth, which isn't really truth if you stop and think about it logically. That doesn't work, and that's why our society is so screwed up right now. Um, And so being rooted to what is actually true, the words of God, Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by Him. It's His thoughts. And I want to just give you a couple practical suggestions or, or tips or tools to help you kind of put down roots in God's truth. One would be if you don't have a Bible that is understandable, so a translation that's understandable, get one. And in fact, I would suggest that you get a study Bible. Now, if, you, if you're used to carrying around your Bible on your phone, that's fine. Nothing wrong with reading Scripture on the phone. But there is something different about having a paper study Bible that you can take notes in, you can highlight, you can draw arrows from this, scripture, from this verse to that verse and make connections. And God will begin to speak to you as you go through that, and you're going to have a record of your journey with Him, and it's going to kind of become your friend. It's also set apart from your phone that you use for everything else. And you're like, okay, Chris, what kind of study Bible should I get? Well, there's a bunch of different ones. And we actually, today, we have out in the lobby, if you go out to the right by the coffee bar, we have a merch table um, that has a bunch of study Bibles on it. And uh, I... We, only, we don't have enough for everybody. We have a kind of a handful of each, but it's an opportunity to kind of get your hands on it and figure out which one you like. This, this one's called the NIV Study Bible. It's $22. It's an investment in your spiritual growth. But carry it with you. Bring it to church. You know what they found? I've said this before, but if you carry a Bible to church, you are like way more likely to actually read your Bible during the week. 
I don't know why that is. I just know that that is. And so bring it with you each week. There's study notes that give you context. And you're like, well, I don't have any money for a study Bible. We've got free Bibles out there. No study notes. Start saving up for a study Bible. If you don't have one, you want one. Um, and then the other thing that's on the merch table, uh, or we have these journals. This is kind of like a moleskin-style journal. And inside the moleskin-style journal, these are two bucks, by the way, um, is a sheet of paper that I put together. Vicki laid it out. Um, but it's a step-by-step -step how to read your Bible and actually get something out of it. And if you put this together with that and you, you start writing things down, you don't have to be an expert on Scripture or, or context or anything. There's some context in the study Bible, but it will help you. Just God will begin to speak to you, and you'll be writing those thoughts down. These two tools together, um, as we begin this new season, this new, this new series, I just want to encourage you to begin some new habits and to root yourself. Because if our, our worldview isn't shaped by Scripture, it will be shaped by a bunch of nonsense going on around us. And there's a lot of nonsense going on around us. So, um, but we're giving you the tools, and then, uh, and then you guys get to use them. So there's that. And we're going to go through James. So here's the thing about James. James is a cool book. It is packed with just great stuff, practical. This is how you live faith. Do this, do that. Uh, it's action-packed. It is um, full of Jesus' teachings. Uh, really, James reiterates a lot of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, but, but kind of puts, uh, puts feet on it in, in a way that you can apply to your life like right now. So this is going to be a lot of good life application. And James is an interesting character. So in the New Testament, there are four Jameses that we read about. They were not creative with names. All right, so there's four Jameses. Um, the, first, uh, the James you're probably most familiar with is John's brother James, son of Zebedee. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. Right, yeah. So there's that James. He's probably the most well-known James. Um, there's James who is another one of the disciples, son of Alphaeus. We hear about him re referred to in the, New, or in the Gospels. And then there is a father of one of the disciples is named James. And then there's this James. This James, who wrote this book, actually is the leader or one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus is resurrected and ascended into heaven. But before Jesus was resurrected, this James had nothing to do with Jesus. Well, actually, he had a lot to do with Jesus. He just didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God or the Messiah. This James is Jesus' brother, and he didn't believe in Jesus. He grew up with, what, what would it take for you to believe your brother was the son of God? Right? And I mean, he was, he was a little skeptical. In fact, at one point, he goes to get Jesus and bring him home because he's like, he's out of his mind. We got to get him and bring him home. Like, he doesn't believe in Jesus. But then something miraculous happens. After Jesus is crucified and after he comes back from the dead, he comes face to face with the living Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, he sees Jesus alive, and his life changes like that. That's about what it would take if you, your brother claimed to be the Son of God, right? Crucified, nobody survives a Roman crucifixion. He is alive. I think James is one of the great arguments 
like if people want to argue whether Jesus was who he said he was, I think James is a great argument. James, Peter, or I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul, similar story, doesn't believe in Jesus. In fact, he's persecuting the Christians, and then he comes face to face with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he turns around, becomes a Christian, plants all these churches, writes all these letters that end up becoming books in the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul has a complete turnaround. Same thing with James. Same thing with James. The the apostles, uh, after Jesus' death, they are afraid, they're running, they're hiding, they're demoralized, they see the risen Jesus, and all of a sudden, they're all in, to the point that they were all willing to lay down their lives because they were not willing to say that Jesus wasn't alive. Now, every once in a while, you'll get a crazy person who will lay down their life, but you don't get groups of crazy people. You know I mean, like, you don't get like they saw Jesus alive, they would not deny it. And, and so I think, you know, I think James, Paul, the apostles, great argument for the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. Last week, we talked about the prophecies like 300-plus prophecies in the Old Testament that point, pointed forward to Jesus that he fulfilled. Again, another great argument um, that Jesus was who he said he was. It's just kind of something miraculous going on here with, with Jesus. All right, so James goes on to lead the church in Jerusalem or be a leader in the church in Jerusalem. He's Jesus' brother. He's got some bragging rights. Right? You, you, you're like, you guys saw him walk on the Sea of Galilee. When he was five, he walked in the bathtub. It was crazy. You know, I mean, he, he was there all along. Uh, he's the leader of the biggest church or a leader in the biggest church in the whole movement. His, his book is full of wisdom. He's got a lot to brag about. He's kind of the deal now that Jesus is gone. And I want you to notice, now that you've had enough time to open up to the book of James, I want you to notice how he opens his book. He says this. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word there for servant, it's translated servant because that's what we would understand. In the original language, it's bond servant, which would have meant, made sense to them. A bond servant is a slave. So he opens up with James, a slave of God and a slave of my brother, Jesus Okay, it's time to pull the notes out. I want you to write this down if it's not written down already. If it is written down, I want you to circle the point. This is it. Point number one, humility is one of the highest of Christian virtues. Humility is one of the highest of Christian virtues. James starts here. He understands who he is in respect to God and to Jesus. Now, he is a leader but he is a humble leader. And throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through, one of the things that we are taught over and over and over again is to be humble, right? Satan falls from grace in heaven. He is the the head angel, the chief leader or worship leader in heaven, But it's not enough. He needs to be the one getting the praise. He needs to be the one getting the accolades. He has this innate need to be the dude, the angel dude. And it leads to his demise. It leads to him him leading a rebellion and falling from grace. The Scripture teaches us that pride comes before the what? The fall, right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the, the humble. 
This over and over again. Jesus invites us to die to ourselves. What does that mean? We die to our egos. No longer is our life about us and our own glorification. It's about him. We live lives of humility. He says, go to the end of the line and promote the people around you. Do not, do not live a life of pride. Wisdom is understanding that, God, this is about you, not me. It's about your glory, not mine. It's about your agenda, not mine. It's about your praise, not mine. This is where James starts, and I think he needs to start there. I am a slave because, well, he's Jesus' brother. He's got a lot going on, and he sets the tone for all of us. Now, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. You know, we've all heard this. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about thinking of yourself less. It's not like, oh, no, I'm terrible. Oh, I'm bad. You know, that's not humility. That's false humility. You know, when people come up to me after a message, every once in a while I'll preach a good one, and uh, they'll come up, and, the, and they're, like, they're like, I was a great message pastor. You know, and, and I've seen this before where they're like, oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. You know, it's like, you know, that, that false humility. No, it's thank you. Thank you. You know, but, it, but it's God. It's not that we don't, we don't loathe ourselves. We don't put ourselves down, but we appropriately position ourselves under Christ. We understand in re- regards to him, we're slaves. We're nothing. Jesus said you can only serve one master, God or money. But I think really behind that is what we're serving is we're either serving ourselves or we're serving God. Humility is the greatest of Christian virtues. Then he goes on. He says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Okay, so now he's letting us know who he's writing to. Most of the New Testament books, um, or that we know as, as books or epistles or letters, are written to a specific church. So you've got Uh, 1 Corinthians is written to the church in Corinth, right? So James is written to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So specifically, this is a circular letter. This was written to be passed among the different churches. And so let me explain the context of what, what he's writing into here. The 12 tribes, we know this from the book of Genesis, is a way to refer to the children of Israel. So he's referring to Jewish believers, which in this point in history, the Christian church is primarily a Jewish, a Jewish concern, right? It hasn't kind of blown open to, to non-Jews yet. Jesus ministered in Israel. He ministered to the Jewish people. Now, it's going to become open, and, and, and non-Jews are going to flood in. That's why we're here today. James actually plays a big part in that. Um, but at this point, it's primarily Jewish, and he says, who are scattered among the nations. So here's the deal. When Jesus left, he gathered his disciples together. He said, I, I want you to go where? Well, we're going go to go to uh, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. I want you to go to everywhere in the world, and I want you to take this good news, this gospel, and I want you to take it to people everywhere. And you know what they did? They stayed. 
They all hunkered down in Jerusalem. Hey, we've got, we've got our, our community here. This is exciting. We, we can comfort and support one another. They kind of created this, this huddle. They huddled up in, in Jerusalem, and they didn't go anywhere. And so God allows this persecution to break out against the church and scatters them all over the world. And so you've got these Jewish Christians scattered all over the world. Their lives have been turned upside down. They are facing a significant trial, and they're being persecuted, and that's where we pick up in verse 2. Are you ready for verse 2? We got the context. All right, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, when I first read that, and probably the first hundred times I read that, I'm like, that's stupid. <laughs> Consider pure joy when you face, I, I didn't get that. I, did, I just didn't understand. Consider pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And he, notice that he doesn't say if you face trials of many kinds. He says when. It's kind of a presupposition. You're going to face trials of many kinds. Many kinds. When you do, consider it pure joy. You know, as you read on into First and Second Peter, which follow this book, and he's talking about trials and persecution. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. If you follow me, you will be persecuted. It's kind of the expectation. And one of the things James does, and a lot of the New Testament does, is it gives us, it gives us a theology and a practicality for dealing with suffering in our lives. Which brings me to point number two. Hard times are to be expected. Hard times are to be expected and prepare us for God's bigger plan. Now, we don't like that statement. In fact, many of us are like, I don't, I, you know, I follow God to get him on my side so that I don't have hard times, right? That's why, that's why I'm in this. But Jesus said, look, you're going to have hard times. It's whenever, James says, whenever you're going to. And guys, we have it easier than any people have ever had it in the history of the world. We live in, at a level of comfort and freedom that nobody has experienced in the history of the world. We have an expectation, as Americans, almost a birthright for comfort and ease, and yet in reality, hard times do come, don't they? They do. But we, we try to game the system such that we can avoid as much of that as we can. I mean, we've got things like modern medicine, you know, diseases that people have dealt with for thousands of years. Now, it doesn't cure everything. Modern medicine doesn't cure everything. But there are things that we can just kind of take care of, and I don't have to deal with that anymore. That, that's the first time in the history of the world. We have air conditioning. Thank God. You know, I mean, 95 and 100% humidity outside, and I am sitting in a 70-degree house, and it's like, oh, I want comfort. And we have freedom of religion, freedoms of speech written into our founding documents that protect us from being persecuted for our faith, right? We haven't experienced a lot of this. So when hard times come, it kind of catches us off guard. But the reality is hard times will come. None of us get through this life without a few hard patches along the way. And the beautiful thing about Scripture is that it prepares us to deal with those when they come, to not be surprised by those when they come. 
Now, he says, consider it pure joy. I want you to notice that he's not saying, feel pure joy when hard times come, when you face a trial. Because you can't control how you feel, do you? You can't. You can influence how you feel over time by having God's thoughts, God's word in your heart and your mind, by, by choosing to look at the, the long game rather than just what's going on in the moment. There are things that we can do that will influence how we feel when hard times come. But we can't force ourselves to feel joy when a difficult time comes. But he says, consider it joy. What does that mean? Well, considering is a thoughtful process, not an emotional reaction, right? Be thoughtful about the difficult time that you're in. Consider it joy because you can look beyond the trial and anticipate the growth, that you can know that God is up to something and he's preparing you for something. And so as you go through this, look for that opportunity. It changes the way you experience the trial that you're in. And he says as much in verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, again, when I first read, read, read all this, the first hundred times I read all that, I'm like, I don't get it, James. I don't want perseverance, and I don't want a, I don't want a hard time. Uh, and I'm not, I mean, how do you consider it pure joy? But trials test our faith. And if we stand through the test, they develop perseverance or spiritual grit in our lives. There's actually good stuff that comes out of hard times. But the test is, am I going to remain faithful or am I going to bail? Am I so in love with my comfort that I will do whatever it takes to get out from, I mean, I'll disobey God, I'll you know, be unethical, I'll do whatever I need to do to get out of this hard time to try and, and get to that place of comfort again, or will I remain faithful and trust God and do what he says? And if you will, you will find that God will strengthen you, that you will become spiritually more healthy, you will become, you will develop endurance so the next time it's not so hard, and you will become more usable by God. Most likely the great things that God wants to do in your life he needs some character in you, and they're going to require some endurance and some grit. We want everything easy. We're used to everything easy. We need some endurance and grit. And so we can take joy knowing that God is accomplishing some things in our lives that hurt and are hard but are really, really good. It's easier the next time. You know, when I was in high school, I ran track, long-distance track, and cross-country. Anybody run? All right, three of us, run, great. Um, that's because it hurts, right? <laughs> so for the, the first, first month of track practice, it sucks. I mean, you're, you, you get cramps, you know, as you're running, you want to throw up, your lungs burn, your muscles are sore, you get up the next day, you're always hungry, and you get up the next day and you're like, oh, it just hurts. And, it, and it's like, it's miserable, it's miserable. And then you hit this point where you find your stride, where your body gets strong, and you can go out for a run, and it's actually fun. Right? Now, if you try and run a marathon, it's going to hurt, but you can actually run a marathon because you have trained, because you are in shape. And, and, and this is what suffering does in our lives. This is what hard times do to us. 
Like I said, James, I thought was crazy until I experienced this. I'm like, who needs perseverance? Oh, well, we do need some perseverance. I, I live this. Now, over my life, I can point to a handful of times that were just really hard times. Like, like I struggled. It was, a, it, was a, it was just a grind. It was, it was very, very difficult. One particular point in time, I was a pastor. I was doing what I'm doing today. I was a pastor. And I don't know if you know this, but pastoring is kind of hard. Now, I know what you do is hard as well, so I, please don't hear me saying what I do is harder than what you do, but, but there's just a ton of other people's expectations you need to live up to. Spiritual projection, I think this, and so you need to do that, and if you don't do that, you're a lousy pastor. That's all going on. And, 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 so, and, and then pe people leave, and that's hard. Now, I want, want you to know, don't feel sorry for me. I'm in a really good place right now. Like, I love my church, I love our staff team, I love our volunteers. This is a beautiful, like, this is just a sweet place to be right now. We're not in a hard season. But there was a time that I wanted to quit. There was a time I thought God was trying to kill me, or at least the church was trying, or at least not the whole staff, but some of the staff was trying to kill me. Some of the parishioners were trying to kill me. And then God leads me into buying this house and I can give you six different miracles that led up to buying this house, and it was going to be awesome. And then it turned into like the money pit on steroids, and everything that could go wrong went wrong. And I thought my house was trying to kill me. You ever have a house try and kill you, anyone? It's possessed by Satan himself, Beelzebub. Um, it was terrible. I remember this one night. We had been working and working, and nothing was working right, and we finally got to a place where we were finishing stuff up and got the kitchen all done, this beautiful new kitchen, took this old house that was, should have been bulldozed, tore everything off the inside and outside, and redid everything. So it was like, everything's new, it's going to be great. Put in this new kitchen, my daughter's bedroom, and we're tucking my daughter into bed for the first time in her new bedroom. And my in-laws were there. I remember my in-laws were there. And we had had a snow, and it was starting to melt. And I put my daughter to bed, and I hear this noise. And I'm, I'm like, where's it coming from? And it's like water's running somewhere. And I go over, and on the wall, between the wall and the outside of the house, there's a stream running down the inside of my wall. And the snow was getting sucked up into the shingles and, and coming down between the walls. And... and uh, in this bubble, water bubble. You ever, anybody ever experienced that coming down this brand new finished wall, brand new bedroom, down through the floor into my brand new kitchen, big bubble. I mean, and I remember sitting on the edge of my bed with tears running down my eyes, thinking, God, I can't, I can't do one more day. I, I don't know what you're doing here, but this, I've got nothing, nothing left. I developed health issues in that season. My kids developed health issues in that season. It was tough. I thought I was going to die. I didn't know if I would make it. And I just, God, help me put one foot in front of the other. And more than anything else in the whole world, I wanted to quit. Ever been there? Like, God, let me quit. I don't want to do this anymore. This is horrible. And... Um, and so let me, just let me out. And he would never let me out, like, like on the church thing, he wouldn't let me quit. I'm like, I, I don't even know if I can get up tomorrow and go back for another day. 
He wouldn't let me quit. Finally, I found, so I was looking for people, other people to give me permission to quit. They wouldn't let me either. And then I found this guy who was a kind of a mentor, and we read through a book together, and, and I came to the conclusion that I'm going to quit. And, um, and then God had this experience with God where he just kind of spoke. I was using one of those journals, and I'm writing, and God just starts talking. And I'm writing, I'm, I mean, I, I'm writing down what he said, but basically what he said is, you stay where you are. I'm like, mm. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I have what it takes to go back in another day. But he spoke so clearly, and I stayed. And I faced years of struggle ahead of that. It wasn't like, oh, I go in the next day and everything's resolved and it's all good. There were years of struggle beyond that. In verse 4, James says this, let perseverance finish its work. In other words, what he's saying there is stay under it. Don't short-circuit it. Don't take the easy way out so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Remain under patient endurance. Now, I could have quit. I mean, God would have let me quit, I think. But I would have ended up right back there anyway, because that's what happens when we short circuit what God's doing in our lives. He just brings us back around in another experience till we learn the lesson that we're, we need to learn in that season. And I would have missed out on what God was doing in me. So again, a throwback to the book of Genesis. I love the story of Joseph. I so relate to the story of Joseph. Because Joseph is this arrogant young kid. He, 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 he's just, it's all about Joseph, right? And his brothers sell him into slavery. And then he, <clears throat> and then he gets falsely accused of raping his master's wife, which he didn't do. And then he gets thrown in prison. 12 years of putting one foot in front of the other. 12 years of choosing not to disobey God, doing the best he can, choosing to not grow bitter but to forgive, choosing to show up every day at work and give it all that he's got, some days I'm sure more than others. And what is God doing in Joseph in all of that? He's preparing him to save the world, to save Egypt and his family. He wasn't ready before that. He had to learn humility. He had to learn that it wasn't about him. He had to learn that God would give him the strength that he needed along the way. He wasn't ready to lead. He would have been a dangerous leader without those lessons. He learned endurance and perseverance. That's what I learned in that season. I learned that the next time something hard happened, I was like, oh, that's just that. <laughs> no big deal. We've been there. Not a big deal. And you're able to focus and you're able to be used by God in the midst of that. And you show up and you do your best. And here's what I learned. God is faithful. He will give you everything you need if you will do what he's telling you to do. Again, it's like training for a distance race. It hurts like hell when you start. It hurts. It's painful. But if you don't quit, if you stay 
in and under the training, it develops the, the physical characteristics you need to be able to run, and you hit a point where it doesn't hurt anymore. You're stronger, you're healthier, you're complete, not lacking anything. It's interesting the language that James chooses to use there is the same language that the Greeks would have used for a, a, uh, somebody who was training for a decathlon that they would be complete and mature, not lacking anything. In other words, they are conditioned and in shape. That's what he's talking about. So the logical question is, 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 is it okay to ask for God to provide a way out? Is it okay to ask for deliverance from whatever that t- trial of many kinds that you're facing is? Is it, is it all right to do that? In the wor- and I did every day. I think you're kind of silly not to. God, let me, let me out. God, deliver me from this. God, make a way. Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane and the night before he was crucified. He's got the cross in front of him. He doesn't want to go through that. And he falls on his face in the dirt. He's sweating drops of blood because he's under such anguish. And he's like, oh, God, get me out of this. Let's go another way. Three times he comes back and says, God, can we do it a different way? God, this is too much for me to bear. But he always at the end said what? But not my will, but yours. And ultimately Jesus goes through with the crucifixion. He goes through with his sacrifice. Why? Well, it says in in the New Testament, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The cross was not the joy. Your salvation was the redemption of mankind. And God, in his wisdom, knew there was no other way to accomplish that. And Jesus, in his submission to his Father, said, not my will, but yours be done. Now, I don't think God's just in the misery. I don't think he's into to us suffering just for the sake of suffering. Usually there's something that he's accomplishing in the midst of that. And so if you're in, in the midst of something and God provides a way out, if he gives you a, you know, you're like, God, get me out of this, and he gets, gets you out, then get out. You know, if you don't have to suffer, I wouldn't suffer. But don't disobey God. Don't compromise your integrity just to make the pain stop for a moment. He's accomplishing something bigger. Count it pure joy and know that you're going somewhere. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. All right, so this is important. As we, as we go from verse 4 to verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, it is absolutely critical that you understand this is all one thought. All right, there is a context here for these next verses. All right, so the context is not, well, I don't know, should I, uh, should I be a surgeon or should I be a, um, you know, a financial advisor? Uh, should I marry her or should I marry her? Should I go to school here or should I go to school there? Now, I think those are fair questions to ask God and seek him for, but that's not what he's writing about here. He's writing about when the wheels are coming off. When the wheels are coming off and everything is topsy-turvy and upside down and you don't know which way to go and you're facing a trial of many kinds, he's saying, ask God for wisdom 
and he will give it to you. No questions, full stop, he's going to come through. He will guide you and direct you in the midst of that. Does that make sense? Okay, because the context is important. God is not a reluctant giver. Sometimes when we're trying to figure out whether I should do this opportunity or that opportunity, he doesn't give wisdom because he's, doing, he's developing something else in the middle of that, right? He's, he's de- developing a, in us a, a reliance on him. And that's great. I mean, he doesn't always, but man, if, according to James, if you're under it, if you're in a, a, a trial, God is going to give you the direction and the wisdom that you seek. He's not a reluctant giver, which brings me to point number three. Ask God for direction and wisdom and know, underline the word know, he will give it. And then we come to verse six. And verse six, I think, is one of the most misunderstood verses, verse six, seven, and eight, misunderstood passages that, that we will come across. And here's why. Because we lift those verses out of its context and we try to apply it to every part of life. And it doesn't. This is what it says. See if this sounds familiar. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person, per, person, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So you read that by itself, and you just walk away thinking, going, all right, so if I can't work up enough emotional energy to overcome the doubts that I have and pretend that I don't have doubts, then I'm, a, you know, I'm spiritually uh, useless and I suck and God doesn't love me and won't do anything for me. It's your fault you don't have enough faith. That's not what this says. That's not what this says. Again, context is everything. We're asking God for wisdom to get through a trial that we're facing. All right? And when we do, he's going to give you that wisdom. He's going to give you that direction. James promises us that he will. He's going to answer. Ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So when God gives you that answer, what are you going to do with it? We've defined faith as trusting God enough to do what he says. That's our belief. That's our trust. We believe God enough to do what he says. So when God gives you that wisdom, James is saying, do what he says. Do what he says, which brings me to point four. God will lead you out of or through the trial. You're either going to lead you out of it or you're going to walk through it depending on what purposes he's trying to accomplish in your life, follow his lead and do what he says. Obedience is the key here. This is not working up enough emotion to believe for something that you don't believe. That's not what he's talking about. This is not positive thinking or visualization. This is trusting God enough to obey him. Read the context. Read Read what he's saying here. This is And when we don't, when we choose to disobey because we just want the pain to end, well, when we disobey God, of course, we're blown around by our feelings. We're double-minded. We're unstable. All the things that he says there. 
That's what happens when we decide to go our own way. So this has nothing to do with hyping up enough faith, going, oh, I believe, I believe, I believe. I'm starting to sound like donkey. I believe. (laughs) Handful of you got that. I believe. And and somehow I'm just going to overwhelm my doubts. You know what? God can handle your doubts. I mean, it's good to not have doubts. It's good, and and I think we learn that over time as we walk with God and we see him be faithful over and over again. You know, he never, I mean, he may not do exactly what you want him to do, but he will never leave you hanging. And you'll learn that as you walk with God over time. And there's peace that comes with that, and there's joy that comes with that, and there's trust that comes with that, and there's there's a a belief that comes with that. Like, I don't know how this is going to work out, but God's got it. But this has nothing to do with hyping up faith. You know, as we went through the book of Genesis, one of the things I I found great comfort in is how dysfunctional those people were. I don't know if anybody else did, but I'm like, man, if they're in, (laughs) I got a shot, right? In the book of Acts chapter 12, Peter is arrested. Peter is, um, they're pretty sure he's going to be executed. He's putting put in prison, and all the believers gather at John Mark's house that night to pray, and they have an all-night prayer meeting, and they are praying, God, get him out. God, bust him out of jail. God, preserve his life. They're praying and praying and praying all night long, and sure enough, an angel shows up in the prison cell, busts him out of jail, takes him out onto the streets of Jerusalem. He walks out, and he's like, I'm out of jail. I bet you, well, I bet you they're at John Mark. So he goes over to the house where everybody's gathered praying, and he knocks on the door, and a servant girl opens the door, looks at him, goes, ah, and slams the door and runs back in, and they're like, what is it? And it's like, Peter, Peter, he's at the front door. And they're like, oh, that's not Peter. They, they must have executed him. That's got to be his ghost. That's what they said. It's in the Bible. Read it. It's Acts chapter 12. They didn't believe for the thing that they had been praying for all night long. And yet God answered their prayer. You know, when I was, uh, when I first started working for the church, I had a uh, a health issue with my pinky finger. I've told this story a couple times, but I I don't know if I've ever told this part of it. I had um, my finger hurt for about a year. It was swollen. They were talking about taking the finger off my hand, actually, surgically, because it was, it was that significant of a deal. And I had been working for the church, so I got prayer. I mean, I, people prayed in the lobby. People prayed in the bathroom. Very awkward, you know, like, can we pray? I'm like, well, can I finish? You know, I mean, it's like, uh, <clears throat> you know, out in, the, out in the parking lot, at the store, you know, I mean, everywhere. I've been prayed for a hundred times. So at the end of a year, I knew that God did not want to heal my finger. There was just no question about it. So we're on this college retreat. I was leading college students back then. And one of the college students is like, hey, we're, I, feel like, I feel like we're supposed to pray for your finger. And I'm like, okay. You know, <laughs> pastor full of faith. And I, you know, I can't say it out loud, but in my head, as they're praying the whole time, I'm thinking, God doesn't want to heal my finger. He's not going to heal my finger. He doesn't want to heal my finger, you know? I mean, he's just like, not going to do it. But I'm trying to put on, you know, a, I, I'm trying to seem confident for the sake of their faith. So they say, Amen. We open our eyes. Finger's still swollen, still hurts. 
I'm like, all right, whatever. God didn't heal my finger. But thank you for praying. It was very nice. Next morning, as I'm waking up, the first thing in my consciousness is that my finger doesn't hurt. Open my eyes, the swelling's gone. It miraculously healed overnight. God healed my finger. Did I believe that God was going to heal my finger? No. Is it, is it really all about me working up enough emotional energy to overcome any kind of doubt that I have for God to do what God wants to do? No. No. Thank God. Now, I don't encourage us to be doubtful. I think, you know, believing for God to, to do but is a good thing. But I don't think God calls us to fake it either. He'll overcome your doubts in time. See, obedience is the mark of faith, not your feelings. Trusting God enough to do what he says. And when he speaks into your difficult situation and says, this is what I want you to do, and this is going to last a little while, it's not going away immediately, you keep going. You do what he says. And as you walk with God, you will become more confident in him because you will see him come through. And your peace will grow. So, when you're going through trials of many kinds, look at the big picture. Assume that God is up to something bigger in your life or somebody else's life. And let God grow you. Let him develop in you what he's developing in you. And you won't be able to see it all on that side of the equation, on that side of the process, trust him. And instead of doing whatever it takes to get out of the situation that you're in, pray and ask for wisdom and let him lead you either out of it or through it. And he will give you that wisdom. And when he does, you ready for this? Do what he says. The book of James. Let's pray. Lord, God, we all face trials of many kinds. Some of us are, are in them right now, Lord. Some of them, us are just getting out of them, and some of us are waiting to go into some. But God, we know that you use everything for good. God, we know that you have purpose and plans for every one of our lives. And God, that you are developing in us faith, perseverance, character. And God, I just pray that you would. I pray that you would help us live not like the children of this world, but of, like your children, Lord. Not living for the next 15 minutes, but living for the big picture. God, I thank you that you're not... Thank you that you're not easy on us. But God, that you, you desire to develop our character. pray, Lord, that in the, in the process of all of that, that we would see how real, how loving, how good you are, God, and that you would give us patience, that you would give us patience to not short-circuit your, your work, but to walk with you and find that you are enough in the good times and in especially the bad. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. 
It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.